Blog Talk Radio. Happy 4th of July, everyone. Got a great show for you. You're going to love this. The Death Race. If you've never heard of it, this is probably the most taxing event you could ever possibly participate in. It's really worth a great listen. And before you do, I want to remind you that very soon, starting next week, we will be offering up a new episode named Listen and Learn. We're going to go in and offer some educational component for athletes. It's really going to be great stuff, and you're going to only be able to find it if you visit naturalrunningnetwork.com. Let's do the show. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. So I'm here with Dylan Davis. And full disclosure, Dylan is actually a client of mine. You know, We met on the Spartan Cruise and it's been good ever since. And Dylan has just last week, oh, excuse me, this week, yeah. completed the 2015 death race. And I thought it would be really awesome to have Dylan come on and give us a blow-by-blow what all went down and what it was like. And everybody is really, really curious about this event because it changes all the time. And it's uh, it's generally kept under wraps. So, Dylan, say hello to everybody and tell them a little bit about yourself. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, I am Dylan Davis. I um, own and operate a CrossFit gym in Butler, Pennsylvania. And... uh, Aside from that, I've been training to do Spartan races for a couple years now. Just been working on improving my running for that. This past year, starting in January, I ran the Winter Death Race. Just kind of got roped into that through Joe DeSena. The guys at Spartan kind of threw the opportunity my way. I didn't really know a whole lot about it, but it sounded pretty extreme and pretty exciting and uh, kind of gave me gave me something to train for and something to be excited about, so... I went out and did that one and uh, managed to be one of uh, nine finishers to finish that winter death race. And then I went back to Pittsfield, Vermont uh, this past weekend and finished the summer death race. So that's me up to this point. <laughs> wow. You know, and I guess I guess it didn't occur to me, and I, it should have, but this is your second death race for the year. Yeah. Yeah. And in this past six months. So I guess the next question would be, comparatively speaking, without getting into great detail, uh, which was tougher? Um, I've had that question a couple times, and uh, the way I've been explaining it is like, summer seems like it was a lot harder, and I think that's mainly because it's so fresh in my mind, all of the the tasks and stuff, I can can still remember um, how bad it hurt and, and how hard they were. I spoke to Joe DeSena 
some time back, and we discussed Death Race and you know the origins of the event and and uh, how it kind of brought him to the development of the Spartan series and what have you. But you know, it seems like such a suffer fest. Everybody I talk to outside this world of Spartan and, and obstacle racing. When I mention this, they say, why? Why would anybody want to do that? So what's your take on that? <laughs> um, it's it's kind of a tough thing to explain to people. There's not a lot of people who can really understand uh, what purpose you would have for putting your body to that limit. Um, I don't know. It's It's a tough one to answer, and I think everybody's answer, any death racer you talk to, their why is going to be a little bit different, but... For me, it's just to to see what I'm really capable of. I've always been one to, uh, you know, compare myself to other athletes and try to compare my progress and to, you know, really get down to it. What is the ultimate measure of fitness and, and the full balance of mind, body, um, just overall general fitness? What is the most legitimate test of who you are as a person and where you stand with your morals and your integrity um, the death race is is the ultimate thing that I have I have ever experienced that really tests you, you know, not just physically but but mentally. I, I would think it's more mental than it is physical. It really is. There's a there's a certain point in the race, and and this being my second one, I kind I kind of knew what point in the race I needed to reach to really break through that um, physical boundary. At, at a certain point, they they break you down with a lot of physical tasks and. Physically, you don't you don't have a whole lot left in the tank, and it's just uh, your your mental game that really comes into play. Okay, so let's talk about it for a second. Now, my understanding is when you've been accepted to participate in the death race, then you're given a list of items and things that you need to bring along to prepare. Yep. And most times, you have no idea what the hell these things are for, and probably a lot of times you're wondering what they're going to have you do with these things. Yeah. What was, uh, what? just kind of give them a, a laundry list of the items that was uh, requested of you this last time around. Okay. Um, yeah, so real quick on the gear list before I get into it. I'm actually going to bring it up on my phone here so I can look. But the gear list is like, as soon as that's released, it's usually a month out from the race itself. I, I like to think that as soon as that gear list goes out, the death race is on. Like, it already has begun. The mental game is already in play because they're just, there will be some things on this list that you'll think, like, what the hell are they going to make us do with that, you know? So, okay, I'm looking at the list now. I'm going to go through a couple that were um, interesting. So it says water bottles, water purification means, eight feet of flexible tubing with one inch or half inch outside diameter, three-eighth inch inside diameter, uh, multi-tool with a sharp knife, 100 foot of rope, a coin from your birth year and one from every fifth year since to present, um, a thrift store suit or dress suitable for church, um, 16 ounces of whipped cream, 5 ounces of Frank's Red Hot Sauce. It goes on and on a little bit, but you can get the idea. Yeah, well, I, I know I uh, I had this conversation with uh, Jun Young Park. And, you know, the human hair, needle yeah. and thread, stuff like that. I mean, it's just like, it absolutely just sets your mind to wander, right? It certainly does, yeah. That's uh, that's where the mental game starts early. They get you thinking about what could they possibly want 
want you to do with this flexible tubing, and um, you know it gets you it gets you thinking. So my my understanding is that most of these events, or I think all of these events, occur on DeSena's property out in Vermont, right? Uh, yeah, this one this one started at the Trailside Inn, which is in Killington, but uh, we ended up on Joe's property for a little bit, and uh, a majority of the race took place at a an area, a, you know, a place they called Area 51. That was our destination the whole time. Okay, so you you show up and kind of take us like from start to finish. What is the first thing that occurs when you show up? Okay. Um, well, it's it's kind of a the the mental game comes into play again whenever they start sending out these emails that are um, trying to coordinate where where the race is going to start exactly. So one of the emails that we got said there was a mandatory meeting at the Trailside Inn at 4 p.m. Um, Thursday, and then it later changed to 5 p.m., 6 p.m., um, and then eventually the dinner was at like 5 or 6, and the mandatory meeting didn't start until 8, 8, 8 or 9 o'clock. So the idea was they, they kind of tricked us into staying up all day at Thursday, and then the race officially started at Friday, 2 a.m., and that was announced at the mandatory meeting. So, okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So the race started at uh, 2 a.m., and you were just told to be outside of the Trailside Inn with all of your gear and ready to go um, five days with no crew. So this was announced pretty late, too, that there would be no crew allowed. And, uh, you know, that just means, like, family or friends you could bring along to uh, to be at, like, the base camp, and you can check in with them and, and have them... Um, you know, check your gear and, and feed you, dry your clothes, things of that nature. Well, my understanding was that the exception to the rule was if you had support, they had to do the entire event with you and that they needed to finish with you, otherwise you didn't finish, right? Right, yes. Yeah. So you could uh, You could have a supporting racer is what I think they were calling it. And they they would have to do the entire race with you, which is pretty a pretty evil trick because uh, you know it's basically just doing two racers doing the entire race for for one skull or you know one uh, right it's <laughs> a two for one deal <laughs> yeah it didn't didn't work out for anybody's favor I don't think anybody had a supporting racer that finished with them so how many folks actually started this event with you um I, I don't know the exact number right now I believe it was around two hundred people because wow. there was two different registration points. Um, you could either start at that 2 a.m., which was what mostly everybody's uh, intention was, to start at that 2 a.m. time. And then we met up with, I, I think it was 70 other athletes who started at 9 a.m. And we met up with them, and uh, the race officially started around that time. And how many women were there? Um, I'd say 30, 20, 30. Okay. In that range. All right. Just an amount. Okay, so you start, the, what's a gun go off, or how does it all work out? Uh, no, Johnny Waite pretty much just said, all right, start army crawling up this hill and roll down it with your packs on, and we were waiting for a bus. So that was like the first task was waiting for this bus to, to bring us to, uh, I believe it was called Tweed Trail, and uh, we, we waited for the bus. I managed to be one of the first people to get on this bus and get to relax and close my eyes on the bus until it brought us to this uh, secret starting location. Okay, so you army crawl up the hill. How high was the hill? 
not nothing extreme. I'd say 30 yards up a hill okay. and then roll on your side down it with your bag on, which is okay. very uncomfortable and, and got you wet and got all your you know, clothes nice and wet, and it was already dark out, so it was kind of chilly. Get you dusted off a little bit before you start. Right, yeah, just to make you uncomfortable. So you get on the bus, and then where do you go? It took us to uh, this Tweed Hill. Joe DeSena is waiting for us there. He uh, he hikes us up, probably, you know, an hour and a half, two-hour hike, covered some distance, and uh, summited this hill here, and we start doing burpees. Burpees with a pack on. Um, we did around 150 burpees as a team in unison, and... Uh, we waited for the rest of the teams to arrive, waited for the bus to circle back and pick up the rest of the teams. Oh. So the people that came in behind, you didn't have to go through that? No, they just uh, they spent that time doing rolls down the hill instead. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like yeah. All right. So then you, you've got the burpees done. Joe's got his little bit in for you. Then what? Um. So from there, we, we got organized in our team, and they said that we were going to – um, go and do some chores. We're going to start the day with some chores. So from there, we hiked for another probably two hours or so to get to a place that I was familiar with. It's called Miguel's Cabin. And uh, the Winter Death Racers, we actually helped build the cabin. We, um, if you recall, it was my profile picture for a while, but they had us reach into a bucket of freezing water and pull out screws and pull out a screwdriver to uh, attach these uh, two-by-eights to the side of this uh, cabin. So we helped build this cabin, and now we were going there to do some uh, some maintenance on it. I, like, reorganized the attic and moved shingles around, and they, they had all kinds of silly tasks for us to do with this cabin. But we spent um, until sunrise there. So it started at 2 a.m. This is probably around, you know, 7.30, a.m. that uh, the sun was rising there. So uh, from there, we took care of some tasks and uh, chores around the cabin, got ourselves organized, and left from there. I, uh, me and a couple other guys had, had been carrying a girl who uh, twists her ankle or something. There was already a handful of DNS at this point, probably under 10, but uh, some people had some hydration issues, um, other silly stuff going on to cause you to DNF that early in the race, but... Me and another couple guys carried this girl out, and we went all the way back to uh, to Joe's house, Amy Farm. And uh, we took a group picture there and continued hiking. We hiked and hiked and hiked. This was probably hiking until around 11 or 12 um, noon. And we um, got set up for what would be the official start of the race. So at this point, we had met up with everybody else who had registered late and got their bibs late. And uh, Johnny Waite had us sit our butts in this uh, pretty cold water right over top of a bridge. Johnny Waite and the rest of the staff were on top of the bridge as we sat below. Um, and he forced us to make a, a human dam in this water to stop it from flowing. So we're set up there. He's making some announcements and explaining what our next task is going to be. Um, and that's whenever it was explained that we're going to do blood root. We're going to head over to Bloodroot Trail, which is a pretty notorious, uh, brutal, swampy, rocky mess of a mountain trail uh, adjacent to Joe DeSena's property. So we get situated and lined up for that. Um, oh, and oh, yeah, we did the uh, the official theme of the race is life. 
so we had to be born first. So I don't know if you saw the pictures of this, but we had to have our sleeping bags. Yeah. <laughs> and have the sleeping bags, and we had to submerge ourselves underwater with our sleeping bags uh, up to our shoulders and around our head. We dunked ourselves in the water and then pulled yourselves out. And uh, at this point, we were barefoot as well. We had to, to get out of the water barefoot and take our sleeping bags with us and start our ascent toward Bloodroot. How long were you in the water? Oh, I wouldn't. Less than two minutes. Okay. I was pretty quick in there. But they were they were calling out different bib numbers and saying, hey, you didn't, you didn't fully submerge yourself. Try it again. And so they, they had us take a couple... Couple extra extra minutes in that water, which was quite cold. wasn't as cold as winter, but it was still pretty damn cold. Okay. Yep. Then you do what now? So as soon as you dunked yourself in the water, you got out and uh, got your stuff together. At this point, it was like the the naked and afraid thing where we had to be barefoot in our underwear and have enough gear to last us 24 hours. So I had like a small Camelback uh, backpack with some protein bars and a Nalgene bottle of water and uh, my sleeping bag, my trekking poles, and not much else because I was barefoot. <laughs> mm-hmm. So got situated and uh, got my sleeping bag wrung out a little bit. It had absor- absorbed a ton of water and uh, hiked, started hiking. And uh, the order in which we arrived was our teams for the barefoot hike. So worked our way to uh, what was the start of Bloodroot Trail. Um, and then we were roped together in teams of 10. So I had a rope, uh, that 100-foot, 3-8-inch rope attached to my shoulder, um, shoulder strap in my bag, and it went to the person behind me. And that rope went back to the person behind them and behind them in teams of 10. And then I was attached, so the leader was attached to the tail of the uh, the next team and so on all the way through for the, I think there were like 16 or 20 teams at this time. So everybody is attached. All attached, and uh, we start our hike. Still barefoot? Absolutely still barefoot. Okay. Still in your undies? Still in the undies, yes. Still in the undies, still barefoot. So we're all roped together, and we start our hike. And we pretty much covered every terrain you can imagine barefoot, from uh, just pavement, flat pavement, to pavement with tiny little sharp rocks, to uh, pretty muddy trails, to uh, trails with, like, big rocks, and then eventually into uh, just, like, straight mud, mud that was, you know, knee or beyond to the to the thigh deep. Um, you had to trust through. And what made it exceedingly difficult was the fact that we're all roped together. So there's certain points that you can move, you know, more quickly and uh, you'd you'd try to drag the person behind you and that would slow the rest of the team down. It was pretty intensely frustrating to be at the front, have my shoulder getting pulled on. Oh, I'll bet. Yeah. So I'd I'd assume that there was people slopping down in the mud and you got to drag them back up and got kind of ugly like that, huh? Yeah, yeah, that was that was ugly. And uh, another thing that was tricky was using trekking poles when you're barefoot. I don't know if you ever jabbed yourself with a trekking pole <laughs> oh, to shoot on, but barefoot, it's it's pretty unpleasant. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. So that went on for what was I understood about uh, 25, 30 miles. Yeah, somewhere in the range. Most people's GPSs said between 30 and 33 miles uh, for the barefoot hike. They had a couple other silly things for us to deal with during that. They had a Bible verse for somebody to memorize. 
um, they were treating us like kindergartners was the idea, is that, you know, we're like tied together with our field trip. They'd said that they wanted us to learn how to play with toys and how to share. So they had five different balloons with the numbers 100, 200, 300, 400, and 500 on them. As we were moving from one place to another, the balloons had to start at the front of the teams and end up at the very back. You could only pass one at a time, and each person had to hold each balloon at least once. So if you let go of the balloon, that specific team would have to do that amount of burpees oh, as a team. Yeah, so you can imagine it was pretty stressful to pass that balloon around and uh, make sure you got a good grip on it. So did anybody end up having to do the burpees? You know what? It never even happened. They never even they never even asked about the balloons. There were people, um, race directors running around trying to pop the balloons with a knife. There were race directors trying to steal the balloons. It was it was basically just to like give us something to stress us out about and always be looking over your shoulder and keep you keep you paying attention. <laughs> All right, so that you go thirty miles like that. You're doing yep. a balloon relay. Yeah. With people that, poking knives at the balloons. Yes. Cool. Very cool. And then what happens? All right. So, um, we, you know, all over, all over Killington, Vermont, barefoot, um, we finally reach the destination, Area 51. This is after approximately 100 racers had quit during this phase of the race. The barefoot was, was absolutely brutal, and it, it definitely brought a lot of people to their end. Um, so we arrive at Area 51, and they tell us that we can go and get our bags and we can get our bags and then there's a huge blazing fire whenever we get there. They say we can grab our bags out of the lake and then go and warm up at the fire and then get ourselves warmed up and situated and they'll tell us what the next task is. What's um, your bags doing in the lake? Yeah, they uh they had submerged our bags in the uh it was a like a man-made kind of pond and it was totally full of leeches. <laughs> so there's there was a medic outside and he was just quickly explaining what leeches are and what what they look like. He had a he had a water bottle, Nalgene bottle with like six leeches swimming around in it. And he just made it very clear how easy it was to get those leeches in his bottle and how many there are in there and what to do if we get one on us. Um so the deal was we we lined up with our teams that we were roped together with. Um I was team number 7, so we were 7th in line. And you had to go into the pond with your team, and everybody had to get out of the pond with their bag in 10 minutes. If not every, if you didn't find your entire team's bags, um, you had to put all the bags back in and go to the back of the line. At this point, um, going from the back of the line to the front would take upwards of, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, moving 10, 10 minutes at a time. Wow. So... Um, all I all I could think about, I was having like fantasies about putting on dry socks and dry shoes. You know, I had my shoes and, and socks in a water sealed bag and a couple of ziplocs, so they were wrapped up pretty good. I was I was pretty confident that I would be able to get my shoes on um, dry. But uh, we get our bags, and you know, even if my stuff was uh, wet, I knew that the fire was over there, so I could get them dried off and and get myself situated for uh, the next task at hand. So we get in the water, and, uh, you know, I can literally see leeches swimming around right in front of me, but managed to escape the water, and we all got our bags. I was leech-free. I had seen a, a couple guys come out with four or five leeches all over their body. Um, They're flicking them off, and, and medical was, was giving guys salt 
to uh, to get the leeches off. Um, so we got our bags. My bag weighed an extra, you know, it felt like a hundred pounds. Still barefoot, mind you. Throw the bag on um, and get the rest of my gear situated, and we headed over to the fire. And once you get to the fire, there was another race director waiting there. He said, if you would like to warm up at the fire, you're welcome to, but you're going to have to give him your bib, and you're out of the race. Okay, so the fire is there to taunt you. You don't get to go by the fire, right? Right, yeah, we found that out. As soon as we arrived at the fire, he said, you can warm up, but you're going to have to give me your bib, you're out of the race. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that was that was probably one of the most brutal um, you know, realizations of the race, is that I'm going to be cold and wet, for the rest of the night. Wow. Um, so they sent us over to this horse pen to, uh, it was going to be our, um, you know, our little campsite for the for the rest of the, you know, the couple of days that we were going to be in this race. So we get, we get over to the horse pen and it's all sand. So you're covered in water, freezing cold, and the only ground you can set up in is sand. So all I want to do is get socks on and there's sand everywhere. Everything's covered in sand. So this was this was definitely the low point of the race. Um, I lost a, a lot of good athletes here. One of my really good friends from uh, the winter death race who, who stuck it out with me through that quit at this point. It was just all around very miserable time in the race. Um, but the only the only thing that really kept me going was knowing this was around two or three in the morning. I just knew that uh, the sun's going to come up in in about four or five hours. And uh, once that sun comes up, that's it's like the biggest game changer. A lot of people told me going into even the winter death race is that you should never quit at night. It's always the worst time um, just to be to not have that heat, not have the you know vitamin D coming at you from the beautiful sun every morning. It's a pretty powerful feeling. I'll bet. Yeah. So you know, let me stop you there for a second. Let's kind of reflect on the winter race. Now, yeah. I'm assuming that the, obviously enough that where where you guys are in the area of Vermont in the winter it must have been just like butt cold the whole time right yes yeah the winter death race was pretty this one 2015 was pretty notorious for being one of the coldest uh, ever there was over 100 people signed up for this winter death race and only 29 athletes showed up to start the race wow the first night was negative 20 wow <laughs> yeah and did, did you have to get in the water yeah, yeah, we did. Um, one of the penalties was well, I'll, I'll give you one one task that happened at winter that was pretty extreme. Was uh, after about forty hours, they put a sleeping eye mask and construction ear covers on us, and had us stand barefoot in the barn, um, which is around twenty degrees at the time. We had to stand in there, and uh, one of the race directors came up to us and you know picked up our eye cover and said, "You have exactly one hour." In one hour, I want you to raise your hand, and uh, then close your eye cover, and you're you're pretty much just isolated from your sight and sound, and you're just standing there. So most people's reaction was to just count 3,600. So uh, at this point, being pretty delirious already, I started counting, and uh, pretty vivid hallucinations, pretty extreme uh, dreams I was having. I I counted to a thousand. And then went back to zero and started counting to a thousand again. Lost track of what number I was on, around 400. Felt like somebody hit the reset button on my brain. 
and uh, just started counting again. I uh, I just remember a race director coming up to me and tapping me on the shoulder and uh, picking up my eye cover, and they told me that I had been out for two hours. Wow. Yeah. So so that fast forward from that, uh, we eventually found out that the penalty for failing that was for every minute you were under an hour, you were penalized, and for every minute you were over, you were penalized as well. So I fell asleep for the two hours, and my penalty was 60 minutes rib cage deep in the water. <laughs> oh God! Now, how, so how yeah. do you uh, how do you stave off hypothermia when you got that going on? Um, I was one of the only guys. I think there was me and like two or three other guys who had brought a wetsuit. I had a, I think it was like a three millimeter Xterra wetsuit. Okay. And uh, I was I was one of the only people that I know of to do the entire sixty minutes straight through. Wow. Yeah. So even with the wetsuit, it got uh, extremely cold. Well, I'll bet. Yeah. Okay, going back to the summer event now. So you, you what are you two days deep so far? Um, this would be this would be right around the end of end of the first uh, twenty four hours because we had just gotten our bags back. Okay. So we're we're you know hoping that that sun's going to rise soon and they announce hey it's time for chores. They told us school is going to start at nine a.m. In the meantime, we got chores to do because you know they're still they're they're treating us like the kindergartners. And uh, now we got to go to school. We got chores to do beforehand. So there's an obnoxious wood pile. It's it's just taller than me, maybe twice the height of me, and and just just massive, an impossibly large amount of wood. So we take that wood piece by piece, one at a time. We walk it um, across Area 51 and up a hill, and make another pile in front of this person's house. So back and forth, back and forth, we stack the wood and then run back and jog, jogging back to the pile, take another piece, back to the pile, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We do that for hours and hours until school starts. And uh, that was a whole nother phase of the race that was pretty pretty mind-blowing how they had this set up. So um, school starts. They, uh, they get us reorganized in our teams, and they send us off in the order that we came in to go and start school. So it's down in, like, a big open field. Um, I'd say it's, like, two, maybe three football field distances long. And I'll just give you a breakdown of what first grade was. Um, so at the one end of the field, they tell you grade one is forward rolls all the way down this field to what looks like a you know a little ant off in the distance. You're going to go roll all the way to that guy down there, and they'll tell you what to do next. So your forward roll all the way down this, uh, this field, and the guy waiting there tells you to go over to, um, it's like a little swamp, swampy, um, you know, thing off on the side of this field here. You go in, and it's, it's like knee-deep, maybe hip deep water and you have to submerge yourself one time for uh for each grade that you're in. So you're in grade one, you dunk yourself once, fully submerged in the water. If your foot was hanging out or your hair was hanging out, you'd have to do it again and make sure you get totally submerged in the water. So out of the gross swampy water. It was like muddy and thick and nasty water. You pull yourself out of there and then you bear crawl the opposite way bear crawl on your hands and knees um, all the way to where you would start that 
the studying for that grade. So the grade one sign was on a on a cone, and it's just the ABCs. That's all it is. You don't know what the test is going to be on, but all it is on the sign is the ABCs. So whenever you want to go and take the test, you forward roll all the way back to where you started, and the teacher's there waiting for you. And uh, the test for grade one was the alphabet backwards. <laughs> and so what happens when you don't get it right? You do it all over again. Ah. Yeah. So I failed first grade, I believe, three times. <laughs> And it was unbelievably frustrating. I could imagine. I could imagine how hard it would have been to do that. Yeah, and we're already pretty sleep deprived, and, and you know our butts are thoroughly kicked. And uh, reciting the alphabet backwards is is no easy task. So I'd imagine the whole time you're bear crawling, you're reciting the alphabet backwards to prepare yourself for the next time you have to do it, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that was grade one. Once you got grade one out of the way, uh, this time it was backward rolls. So backward rolls, two dunks in the water, bear crawl across, study for the test, backward rolls to the next uh next teacher. Now grade grade two was uh it was like one, two, it was like one, two, four, five, seven, X seven. It said on the paper. You'd get across to uh the teacher and they'd say, What did what did it say on the paper? And I just said like one two four five seven x seven, and I was wrong the first time, and realized uh, <clears throat> communicating with another racer that they wanted you to say it was like twelve thousand four hundred and seventy five uh. times seven. So you had to read it as like a multiplication problem, not just the numbers. Yeah. Uh. Oh, failed that one once. Uh, did a ton of backward rolls again and made it back over there. Um, so on and so on. It went up to, there was 12 different grades. I was stuck in, I believe it was third grade for quite some time. And it was just an impossible, like memory test. There were a handful of definitions. It was like marsh equals biomass, air equals air, uh, plus water minus biomass. Um, there was like a random sentence on there that went something like this. It was like, Two dogs live with the swan in the pool by planet X. And then X equals 7 plus 3, uh, the number 6. Um, I think that was everything on that sign. But you had to memorize all of that and recite it. And if you missed one of them, you failed. So I failed that one another two times. And I was within 10 minutes of being dropped from the race at a time hack there um, if I couldn't memorize that whole board. That's where they had got me. Yeah, yeah. I, I tell you what, I was not interested in failing school at the the summer death race. It was uh, it was a time I really had to turn it on and and work as hard as I could to get that thing memorized. Man, you know when you think about physical tasks, when you add the component of having to um, have your noodle on and, and remember things and. Yeah, it, it recite equations and things like this. It's just that just changes everything. It does. I, I'm telling you, I was begging for like a strength offs course, something that I could just muscle through. I was much more uh, prone to just muscling through something than than dealing with that mental game. Oh man. So grade grade four was memorizing four different types of leaf. It was a striped maple, sugar maple, 
uh, Hemlock, and ugh, one other, I can't remember. But you had to recognize they had the physical leaks there, and you had to be able to look at it and, and tell them what it was. Okay. And, and penalties are all the same, right? You you got to dunk now four times. and Yep. Okay. Yep, being dunked four times, five times, and then six times. How long did this go on? Um, School. I'd say around six hours, six to eight hours. Oh, God. Getting through this. So this was like as soon as I finished school, it, it felt like, you know, I just graduated high school or something. It was like such, such a great achievement to like just be done with memorizing that nonsense and, and onward to what was the work phase. So we had graduated. I graduated early, made it through summer school, as they called it, and uh, was able to get out of school and start work. So work was um, you had you, you weighed yourself. You got weighed on a scale, weighed in line, and uh, got weighed. And then they took your body weight and added 30% to that. And you had to find a rock that would make you weigh that much on the scale. So I weighed 170 pounds. And they told me with my rock I needed to weigh 221 pounds. So did some poking around and... Uh, found a couple stones that I felt like weighed that 50-something pounds and uh, got back in line to get weighed. And I uh, got on the scale. They told us that if we were under, we had to do 250 burpees and then find another rock. And if we were over, even if you were over by a significant amount, which many people were, a lot of people had to carry uh, significantly extra weight, um, we just had to deal with it. So I needed 221. I step on the scale with my rocks, and it was 221 and a half. Wow. <laughs> so that was uh, that was my saving grace. That helped me jump up a, a, a number of places in this race. I went from being at the very back um, through school, and uh, this jumped me up to nearing the top 10. My God. Yeah. So... Um, you know, they told us then we need to get our bags loaded up with every piece of gear that we came there with, with our rocks in our bag or carrying our rocks in some way. And the rest of the race was going to be uh, loops on a uh, trail that they had uh, already designed for us. So I got my bag loaded up. I uh, managed to get my bag situated in a way that I used the uh, required life jacket. I put it at the bottom of my bag and then had the rocks up on top of it so it was a little bit more elevated onto my shoulders. Um, you know, 50-something pounds in rocks. My back bag was weighing uh, somewhere in the ballpark of 80 to 100 pounds. Wow. So got situated, got my bag set. Um, this was easily the most intense part of the race because people are getting set fast and, and getting out on the mountain. And it the, the intention was... You know, this is this is we're nearing the end. This is like the showdown, the race. This is where it's starting to really break off into an individual um, type race. So, got my bag situated and um, got ready to head off. Uh, and the first 50 yards, once you get on this trail, was just pure mud. It was a mud bog. It was like a, a swamp where if you stepped in the wrong spot, you could end up shoulder deep in this in this mud um, this is where a lot of people had gotten pulled they had a quad there where they were they were using it to drag people out um, one misstep 
and, and you could slip and, and people were falling backwards, people were going face first into this thick, thick, nasty mud. Um, my strategy was to use my trekking pole to poke around, find something hard, something a little bit solid to step on so I wouldn't slip. So I was using my trekking poles to jab around for rocks and sticks and logs. You just had to move. You had to move fast. So as soon as I'd step into that water, I'd pick my line and just take off. I'd give it everything I got to get through that water and that mud as quick as I could because I uh, saw a lot of people getting stuck in there. I, I had lapped a handful of people who would be stuck in that water and mud for uh, you know over an hour. How, how far was the loop? It was a one-mile loop. Okay. One-mile loop, nothing too extreme except there was just one really brutal steep hill. Carrying this amount of weight, it was it was a serious quad burner. And so, you had had to do that loop how many times again? So you had until I they didn't announce it until I was a couple laps in, but they announced that you had until midnight to get as many laps as you can, and then there was going to be a next phase. So midnight comes around. I have six laps at this point. Each lap was taking me um, just under a half an hour. I was hydrating and eating in between these laps. Just getting myself situated, making sure. At, at that phase, I was moving at a pace that I felt like I could maintain for 15, uh, 15 to, to 20 laps if need be. Um, so I'm, I'm six laps in, and the leader was in had um, nine laps at this point. So Johnny Wade announces that we all need to have um, nine laps by 6 a.m. or we're cut from the race. So I was I was pretty well into uh, nearing that top 10 position. You know, I, I pretty much just decided that I don't need any more breaks and that I was just going to do these last three laps as fast as I could unbroken. So that's exactly what I did. Um, I went for my three laps and finished with my nine and at this point, it was pretty well understood. Uh, the rumor going around was that was like a finish. You finish your nine laps, and then you're done. So that was my light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I finished the, that ninth lap and came back around, and the race director told me, you know, um, I got good news and bad news. You know, the good news is you're done working. The bad news is you're, you're fired, and uh, you're now uh, unemployed, and we're going to send you to PT. <laughs> <laughs> all right okay i forgot you were working that's how, how right. you got fired okay got it yeah. yeah so we're fired um so he said take a breather get something to eat warm up a little bit at this point it had started raining i don't know if you were aware but there was like a pretty brutal um rainstorm like brutal winds coming in so got warmed up a little bit ate some food got situated and then they told me to head over back to the uh horse pen for PT. So blazing winds, freezing cold rain. Uh, I finally get myself hyped up enough to uh, head over here. Johnny Wade's in an SUV, and it's on, and he's got the heat on, and he, you know, you're told to go over and knock on his window. So knock on the window. He puts his window down a couple inches and says, uh, for the next, I don't know how many hours, until 6 a.m., you're going to be doing a workout called uh, 4,000 ways to F up a 10-mile run. I don't know if you've ever heard of it before. No, sounds sounds lovely. <laughs> so it's uh, 40 rounds of 10 or 25 push-ups, 25 sit-ups, 
25 squats, 25 burpees. Wow. And a 400-meter run. Oof. Yeah, so you do that. And uh, I got in a couple rounds. I, I, I was at four rounds, I believe, whenever I crossed paths with, you may have heard of this guy before, David Magida. Uh-huh. David Magida and uh, a handful of other gentlemen, and I believe there was one girl in the group, who uh, we kind of decided that we had already finished the race. There's no reason we need to keep doing this. Because basically, we, we felt like they were trying to kill us at this point. Um, it's brutally cold out. The winds are unreal. Um, we kind of decided there's got to be a way out of this. There's got to be something else we can be doing because th- we, we couldn't keep going. We were, we were all just getting destroyed. Okay, so hold on a second. I just want to process this for a second. Sure. You had 40 rounds of 25 of each of those exercises. And a 400-meter run. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. Yep. Um, so How far did you get before uh, before you guys made the decision that you want to do something else? I, I think as a group we did like two more rounds, and we were just talking and communicating and saying like, "Look, man, I, I can't, I can't do anymore." We were we were shutting down. Everybody was shaking cold. Um, it was it was getting darker into the night, and it was just it was getting brutal out. So we made a decision to uh, to head back to camp. Um, and there was there was no longer any crew around. It was too far into the night. All the crew had pretty much been uh, gave up because the winds were just so brutal. There was very few people left at camp. But we um, kind of banded together as a group and and you know had each other wrapped up in each other's arms. We were as close as we could be together to just conserve body heat and uh, stuck it out until 6 a.m. Cool. And then. And then uh, Johnny Waite came over to us and said, uh, the race isn't over. Um, whatever rounds we did get done on that uh, 4,000 ways workout, that would be to our advantage later in the race. Um, but at this point, we still hadn't finished, and they still had stuff that they needed us to do. So they had a couple more tasks around the, um, the horse pen that we had to do. We had to get our shovels dig the graves for the top six finishers. Um, they, they basically had been assuming that six or less people would finish this race. So they had enough coffins for six people. So uh, we dug out the grave site for them and got the coffins in the ground and did the burial for the top six. They read their eulogies. That was another part of the race that you had to have somebody on call for Saturday morning to uh, to write your eulogy. So my girlfriend was pretty thrilled about that. Oh, bet. So <laughs> yeah. let me let me understand this. You, you sure. stuck these guys in the ground in the caskets. Yep. And then you buried them. Yeah. So did they? Is that what the hose was for? To breathe out of it? Um, I believe that's what they wanted us to think, but they they just put a couple holes in it and just kind of assumed that uh, they'd be able to breathe at least for a couple hours. So were they completely buried? I think there was a couple inches of dirt on top of their casket. Okay, all right. But still, I mean, you're in the you're in the box. You don't know how much dirt's on top of that box. Man, you know what? Every guy that I talked to who was buried said as soon as they were in there and that casket closed, they were out like a light. They were sleeping like a baby in there. <laughs> they were so sleep deprived that it was it was just instant sleep. Oh man. Yep. 
Wow. And then, so that was that the last of it? You did the eulogy? You hung uh, around for the funeral? They, they filmed the, the whole funeral thing, and I'm sure there will be a good video with that in the, in the coming weeks. But that was essentially the end of the race. Um, I believe it was around high 50s, nearing 60 hours total. We never really had a break longer than 15 minutes. Wow. For that entire 60 hours. So the first thing you did when this is all done is I assume you, you wanted to take a nap somewhere, huh? <laughs> you know what? I At this point, I, I just I had a kind of just a, so much adrenaline in my body that I couldn't really sleep. I couldn't, I couldn't relax. So after the race, um, thankfully, I had uh, I'd come there with another buddy of mine from Pittsburgh, and um, he had stuck around and even helped crew for me for a while. Um, he had stuck around and was waiting for me whenever the race finished. We had gotten in his car, went through uh, the drive-thru and got some fast food and just ate everything in sight, returned back to Amy Farm to get a glorious shower, um, and then went, went right from there to meet up with everybody at the general store in Pittsfield, which is like the ultimate meeting meeting place for, for death racers. So we went there, and I was pretty much falling asleep mid-conversation. <laughs> wow. Hanging out with guys there and, and just kind of giving hugs and taking pictures with, with a lot of the other finishers and even those that had um, dropped out. Okay. So here's the big question. What do you got? Are you looking to do this again? At this point, man, like people ask me about it, and uh, I handled the summer death race a lot better than I handled the winter death race. I, I can't really speak too much about it yet, but I uh, after winter I had a lot of problems sleeping well. I had a lot of um, you know kind of PTSD kind of symptoms where I'd wake up and think that I was still in the in the race and I still had laps to do or that I still had tasks tasks to do. But uh, I'm telling you, man, I'm sleeping like a baby. I got I got no problems over here. I, well, uh, but I, that's not the question. <laughs> the question is, I mean, are you satisfied that you're able to do this and you, you don't need to prove to yourself or anyone else that you need to do it again? This is just my life now. Like, this is this is what I want to do is uh, just the most extreme races I can find. This is, I, I feel like this is just like my stepping off point is, is me being able to do these races. And now I want to I wanna take it even further and, and start to win. Well, winning a race, yeah, I, I get it. But th- this doesn't even seem like a race to me. It seems like more of a, a suffer fest just to <laughs> see, you know, I guess it's a test. I guess it's a test to figure out, you know, who could take the most, what's the words? I mean, just, just take such a beat down. Yeah. yeah. You know, and every, everything I do, I feel like I live just such a spoiled life. And uh, this really puts things in perspective for me and, and just – it really makes me appreciate everything I have in life. I made I made the joke a couple times. People like during that race, it's it's the lowest of low. No matter how you slice it, like it's it's pretty much guaranteed to be your darkest point, at least for for that year. So I just made the joke that like you have no idea how good Starbucks is going to taste after this race, you know. <laughs> You know, my uh, do you have a military background? I do not. No, uh, my son is in the military, and yeah. he's in special ops. And I remember him going through Sears School. Yeah. Which, when he 
shared with me what he could share with me about what he went through. It sounds a lot like that. Uh, I think Sears School was probably considerably worse, uh, given that literally you, you're tortured. Yeah. Uh, um, but, oh, man. And that was like, uh, I think it was like three weeks. Yeah, I've heard I've heard about Sears School before. I have, a, I have a friend or two who's been through it. There's different grades. You know, I mean, they have different grades of Sears School relative to your occupation in the military. Yeah. And being in special ops, his was no cakewalk. It was pretty ugly. It sounds a lot like that to me. And, you know, he got through it, but I, I, if I asked him if he needed to go through it again, I, I don't think he'd want to. <laughs> this is kind of the thing where it's like, this is about as close as you can get to being in in the special ops of the military without having to to do that. Right. You without know? getting shot at. <laughs> right. Yeah. Without without having to do any of that. Oh man. Well, uh, I think the focus should be now, given that I am coaching you, that we yes. we focus on getting faster <laughs> and winning some of the uh, competitive races where there's actually reward at the end, as opposed to well, you know, we didn't get to bury you, so you don't get a plastic skull. Oh, I'm getting my skull. I got my skull for this race. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. good. There's plenty of reward. Um, I, I have to agree, though, that that is going to be become my, my main uh, focus, is just getting really fast and, and winning some Spartan races. Well, we're going to get that done. Hell yeah, we are. We're going to get in. that done. Let's do it. All right. Well, look, Dylan, I appreciate you uh, sharing that that uh that horror story with us <laughs> well i'm glad i got it out there man no i know because i i'll tell you what i think uh i think you know when you try to write this and people try to read it 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 takes time to try to explain it yeah but you know someone could sit back in their cushy little home and their cushy little car yeah. uh on their cushy little couch and listen to the suffering that you went through and maybe they'll get up and do something who knows that sounds great man well, look, man, uh, I appreciate you coming on, and you and I will be talking very, very shortly. Great. Thanks, Richard. You bet. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.